Tonight, uh, we're continuing our study of Isaiah, and we're moving into a new section of Isaiah tonight, beginning in chapter 28. And it's been a while since we first started this study, and so I just wanted to take a few minutes just to kind of review and get in our mind's eye kind of the structure of Isaiah, at least the part that we've covered so far. And tonight's lesson is focused on chapter 28, which is a a, a woe or a, a message of judgment to Ephraim, which is another name for Israel and Judah. But just a a little review of the structure going back to the beginning that we talked about. Right in the middle of Isaiah, you have four chapters, 36 to 39, that are very much like the book of Kings, Chronicles. In fact, if you read those four chapters, there are large portions of it that sound almost verbatim like the stories in Kings. So these are more like a historical narrative section, which is framed around kind of the transition of power and influence from Assyria to Babylon. So you've got Assyria and their their threat to Israel, and then they're defeated, and then you have the prediction of the rise of Babylon. So that's kind of the hinge point of the book of Isaiah. Almost everything before chapter 35 has to do with Assyria. And not everything, but mostly. It's it's the focus of chapters 1 through 35. And then chapter 40 through the end of Isaiah is more focused on Babylon, on the coming threat of the Babylonian empire. And so we've been obviously in the first part of the book in chapters 1 through 35. And the first six chapters are just some opening messages, kind of an opening salvo, if you will. And then the call of Isaiah in chapter 6. And then chapter 7 through 12 is really where you get a lot of the background information for a lot of the messages in this part of the book. Because this is where Isaiah goes and confronts the king and says, ask for a sign. Ask for a sign, anything in the heavens above and the depths below. And he says, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And Isaiah says, well, the Lord's going to give you a sign. And all this is related to um, the threat of Assyria and the threat of uh, Israel and and Syria to the north of Judah. So that's, that's kind of a, the heart of chapters 1 through 35, if you will. And then chapters 13 through 23 are different messages of judgment, oracles to the nations. And then the section that we were just in, 24 to 27, is often called the little apocalypse or the apocalypse. It kind of has a more a broad view, worldwide view, as well as a more of a long distant view of, of God's rule over the world. Beginning in chapter 30, chapter 28, where we are tonight, we're going to see um, some woes, some more messages of judgment, but these are specifically directed toward Israel and Judah. Whereas in chapter 13 to 23, it was more broad, uh, Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, Edom. These are more focused on Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms of Israel. And as well, toward the end of this section, especially chapter 34 and 35, the promise of hope and restoration 
after the messages of judgment. So uh, just a, a quick overview of 28 to 35. Tonight we have a message of woe to Ephraim and Judah. And then in chapter 29, woe to Jerusalem, but also her restoration. In chapter 30, you have a specific condemnation of Judah's alliance with Egypt. If you remember, one of the things that that the prophets, especially Isaiah, criticized them for is that instead of trusting in God, they were trusting in human alliances. And so they were trusting in Egypt to protect them from Assyria to the north. And Isaiah rebukes them for that. Chapter 31 describes the fact that Judah will be delivered, but not by Egypt, but by God, whom they should have trusted in all along. Chapter 32 is a description of the rule of the righteous king, a very messianic type passage in chapter 32. Uh, Chapter 33 is woe to Assyria and a blessing to Jerusalem. So it's kind of that double-sided coin again of taking care of Judah's enemies, woe to Assyria, but then the blessings then that come to God's people. Uh, Chapter 34 is God's day of vengeance against the nations. And chapter 35 kind of brings it to a climax with a kind of a a exclamation point of message of salvation and hope. So that's 28 to 35. And so tonight we're looking at chapter 28, which really is divided up into two main sections. The first part is a message to Ephraim, which is another name for Israel. Ephraim was one of the 10 tribes that was that made up the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. But Ephraim essentially was the dominant tribe of the north. And so sometimes you could refer to all of the northern kingdom by saying Ephraim. And then, so that's the first part of the chapter. And then the last part of the chapter is focused on Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah. There is a little bit of debate. As I was looking at some of the different commentaries, there was some disagreement where that transition happens in in the middle of chapter 28. When he stops focusing on Ephraim and starts focusing on Judah. So it, that, that transition is kind of hard to detect. And so there's some who say, no, these verses are more for Ephraim. And some will say, no, it's more, the transition's already happened. It's more for Judah. So there's a little bit of debate there in the middle, but... The first part is Ephraim. The second part is Judah. So let's look at it together. First of all, in verses 1 through 8, a woe or a message of judgment to Ephraim. Chapter 28, verse 1 says, Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. The, the reference to a wreath is probably the idea of some kind of a crown. In fact, we even see this in Greek culture as well, like with the Olympics. If they would win some contest, their prize was a, a wreath or a crown to show their victory. So the idea here of a wreath is probably the idea of of that, of being on top, of nothing, nothing can touch us. We we are on top. Uh, pride, arrogance, but notice how Isaiah describes 
this wreath. It's one of a fading flower. So they have hope and trust in their strength, but Isaiah's warning them that it's all, it's all very temporary and it's all on very shaky ground. And one of the things that makes it on shaky ground is the immorality of Israel and their leaders, which in verse one is exemplified by their drunkenness. Just their partying, their drunkenness. They're just, they're, they're viewed as undisciplined, self-indulgent people. And it's going to be their downfall. So no matter how much pride they think they have, it's, it's going to fall. Verse two, see the Lord has one who is powerful and strong like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. Now, it's not specifically identified in verse 2, but most are in agreement that this strong one, this powerful one that is at the Lord's disposal is the nation of Assyria, which he is using in his sovereignty to come and judge his people Israel. So this wreath of victory or of glory is going to be thrown down and is going to be trodden down, hailed on, rained on, flooded by the Assyrian army is the image of verse two. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards will be trampled underfoot. Again, further description of this defeat at the hands of the Assyrians. That fading flower His glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley will be like figs ripe before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. It's an agricultural image, but basically I think the the point that Isaiah is making is Israel for Assyria is going to be like ripe figs for the picking. And Assyria is just going to come in and just take and eat and just destroy them. Verse 5, in that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. Now, again, you can see the contrast, right? So Israel saw itself and its glories and its leaders and their strength, their whatever their great achievements were, they saw that as their crown of victory, as their wreath. But the Lord's going to throw that down. And in its place, for the remnant that he will show grace to, to the survivors, the ones who are left, he will become their crown. He will be their wreath. And showing them that this is where your true glory should be, is in in me, in God, is what he's saying. And so the Lord's going to overthrow their pride, trample them down, so that only he is left. And his glory is on display. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. The Lord is going to protect those who trust in him. And so he is going to prove to be the source of strength for those who put their trust in him, for the the remnant, for those who see the Lord as their crown of glory. He will be their strength. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. This is one of the points where commentators disagree. 
have we transitioned from Israel to Judah? But I tend to agree with the commentators who think we're still talking about Israel here, and I think the link is drunkenness. And, and so I, and these also, I think what he's doing is he is drawing in another group of people into this condemnation, which is specifically the priests. So you have the failure of the leaders of Israel, political leaders, if you will, but you also have the failure of the religious leaders of Israel. And they're both viewed as immoral, self-indulgent, and causing their own downfall. And so I think verse 7 is still talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. The priests and the prophets, these would be false prophets, right? Not the true prophets of God, like Hosea, Isaiah, Ezekiel, but these would be the prophets who told the king exactly what he wanted to hear. These are the false prophets. And they're staggering from beer. They're befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. The idea is just one of a lack of self-discipline, a lack of control, self-indulgence, and it results in confusion and ultimately disaster for them as a people. Verse 8 does not present a very pretty picture when it says all the tables are covered with vomit and there is not a spot without filth. It's a lovely image, isn't it? But it's kind of the uh, exclamation point, if you will, to this whole description of the failure of Israel and their leadership, both king and political leaders, as well as priests and prophets, their religious leaders. They have completely failed the people. They've led them into idolatry. They've led them into immorality. And they've placed, even though they have a lot to take pride in, earthly speaking, it's all about to crumble. It's all about to fall down. And this is just a very graphic way of of picturing just how humiliated and broken down and um, ridiculous they are. It's almost kind of the image of, of somebody who is drunk too much, too much to stand, right? And, and they've drunk so much that they can't help but vomit it. That, that's kind of the, the image there. It's of their, their complete downfall and embarrassment. And then I think probably we have a transition in verse 9 to talking about Judah and Jerusalem Again, there's a little debate. Is it here? Is it in verse 14? It, there's a little debate there. But I think this is probably a good point to transition and look at him now focusing his attention more on Judah and its leadership. And in verses 9 through 13, we have a description of immature people who do not listen to the Lord's prophets. So in verse 9, it says, Who is it? that he is trying to teach. To whom is he explaining his message? Probably he is trying to teach the one teaching and the one trying to explain the message is probably God. So this is Isaiah speaking, asking the questions, but the one who is seeking to teach and explain is God. And then Isaiah basically insults the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem by bringing out their immaturity and the fact that, that they're like children in the way that they're responding to the Lord in his word. 
to children weaned from their milk to those just taken from the breast? Is that who God is wanting to address? The idea is God desires to address people who are of some maturity. But in reality, the people of Judah are very immature and very infantile. For it is do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. There's, I was reading on this, uh, on the commentaries on verse 10, and there's a lot of discussion about what this means. Probably one of, there, there are several options. One is that the, the people of Judah had become, I guess, bored with the teaching of the prophets and to the teaching of the prophets, it just seemed very repetitive and boring, I guess. So do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. It, so one, one way of looking at it is that the teaching of the prophets to the people of Judah became boring, repetitive, and they weren't interested in it anymore. It's, they didn't, they didn't care to listen anymore. One of the other views on verse 10 is, and you can see this in Hebrew is because it's, it's, it's very poetic in Hebrew. And some commentators suggest that this is even like a nursery rhyme, which displays maybe more their immaturity and that maybe the, to the people listening to the prophets, the, the messages of the prophets were just like a child trying to understand the words of an adult. It just didn't make sense to them. To them, it almost sounded like gibberish. And so this is, this is talking about the people of Israel. And either way, either if they're coming from a point of immaturity or if they're coming from a point of just, this is boring, repetitive, either way, it communicates the idea that they're not receiving the message of God through the prophets, through Isaiah, and to them, it's almost become incoherent that they can't, they're not able to take it in and understand it. So verse 11, Isaiah then says from God, very well then with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. And the way that God's going to do that is through oppression, through enemies, through warfare. Uh, verse 12, to whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. There you can see the idea of refusing to hear the message of the prophets. So then the word of the Lord to them will become, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there, so that as they go, they will fall backward. They will be injured and snared and captured. So verse 10 almost seems to be like either God's word is boring or it's infantile or we're just not interested in it. So God says, okay, I'm going to give you the same message again, but this time it's going to come a different way. This time it's not going to come through the gentle call and rebuke of a prophet. This time it's going to come with a sword and a spear. So you would not listen to the gentle call and rebuke of the prophet. So now I'm going to bring my same message again, but this time it's going to come through the Assyrian army 
and they're going to defeat you. So this is the Lord bringing judgment on his people for their immaturity, their lack of response to the word of God. Verses 14 through 22, we see the Lord rebuilding. He's going to rebuild and he's going to do it his way. Verse 14, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. And this is why I think 9 to 13 was also about Judah and Jerusalem. So this immaturity, this lack of refusal to hear the word of God, I think it's connected to verse 14 when he specifically addresses the people of Judah. So listen, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. If you read the Old Testament, and especially in Proverbs, one of the the harshest words given for an unbeliever, for one who does not fear God, for a rebel against God is a scoffer. It's one who is not only not interested in God and, and rejects God, but one who ridicules and scoffs at God, who mocks God. And so the Lord is calling his own people scoffers, people who mock and scoff at God. Verse 15, you boast, we have entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. There's a little bit of discussion about what this covenant with the dead means, Probably what is in view here is that Isaiah is using some irony. So he's, he's talking about what the, the people of Judah, the, the leaders of Judah have done, but he's speaking of it in ironic, kind of flipped on its head terms. So basically when he's talking about a covenant with the dead or a covenant with the realm of the dead, he is referring to their alliance or their agreement with Egypt. And so from a human point of view, they think they've made a good decision. And instead of trusting God, we're going to go make a human alliance with the people of Egypt. And they're going to rescue us and bail us out. And Isaiah ironically is saying your covenant with Egypt is as good as a covenant with the dead or with the realm of the dead. And then there, he, when he was referring to a lie or a falsehood, I think, again, he's flipping it on its head because the essence of a covenant is an honest agreement, isn't it? So the essence of a covenant is two people honestly and in fidelity entering into a covenant with each other. And basically, Isaiah is flipping that on its head and saying, it's your, your covenant of truth is just a lie. It's just a falsehood. So you might as well have put your hope in the dead and your hope in a lie is basically what he's saying, I think, in verse 15. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic never be put to shame. It's another way of translating that. We all recognize this verse, don't we? This verse is quoted several times in the New Testament. Uh, 
And it is applied in all of those references in the New Testament, it is applied to Jesus, that he is this cornerstone. And those who trust in him are not condemned and will not be put to shame. So what does it mean in its context in in Isaiah 28? Well, probably what it has to do with is the Lord himself and his presence and his word and what he is going to do for his people. I think the idea is there's a strong contrast between verse 15 and verse 16. Whereas the people of Judah had put their hope in this alliance with Egypt, what he's saying is in verse 16, your hope should be in this stone, this rock, which is the Lord and his word and his strength for his people. In other words, who is the salvation of Judah? God is. God is the salvation of Judah. God is the deliverer of Judah. Egypt is not. And so I think it's in that sense that we can make that easy transition then to applying it to Christ because who is the salvation of his people? Christ is. Christ is the rock. Christ is the one in whom we are to trust. Just like the people of Israel are to put their trust in God instead of Egypt, so also we are to put our trust in Christ instead of any worldly things that we can put our hope in. Only Christ can rescue us. But in the context here, it's fundamentally about where your object of trust is. And verse 16, I think, is is important, too, because, again, it holds out this contrast between judgment and salvation. And the stone, how you respond to that stone is the key. Are you, are you trusting in that stone? Are you building your life on that stone as a foundation? If not, then you're going to be crushed by it in judgment and you'll, you will be put to shame and you will panic. You will be in distress. Verse 17, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge. The lie and water will overflow your hiding place. So the idea here is you should have put your trust in the precious stone. But because you didn't put your trust in the precious stone that I placed in Zion, myself, my presence, my glory, my word, so then judgment's going to come upon you. And that judgment is going to come in the form of, again, enemies. And basically the idea of the measuring line and the plumb line is what God does, he does rightly, right? He measures it correctly. And when he exacts his justice, it's perfect and it is right. So the people of Judah deserve what they get from the hand of the Lord. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. And so this is, again, a a warning, a rebuke, to the people of Judah because of where they had put their trust. And the judgment of the Lord is going to come through and it's going to be swift 
and it's going to be strong, and they will not be able to stand up against it. In verse 20, the bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. Again, symbolism, right? What do you do on a bed, right? You sleep, you rest on a bed. If you're sleeping or trying to sleep, trying to rest on a bed that doesn't fit you, how much rest are you going to get? Not much rest, right? It's not going to be very peaceful rest. What about a blanket that's too narrow to wrap around you? The idea of a blanket is warmth, right? Warmth and security. A blanket that's too small, you're not going to be warmed by. You're not going to feel secure by. And so I think the idea here in verse 20 is, In all of these things that you have put your trust, they're like a short bed and a small blanket. And they're not going to give you rest, they're not going to give you peace, and they're not going to give you security. Your only hope and security can come from the Lord. Verse 21, the Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Mount Perizim and the Valley of Gibeon. You might have, if you have a reference Bible, and you look down through the center column, or if you have your references at the bottom, you might notice little footnotes for Mount Perizim, which probably comes from 2 Samuel 5, 17-20. And uh, this is a description of David's victory over the Philistines at, at this Mount Perizim. It's described in 2 Samuel 5. And then you might have a footnote for the Valley of Gibeon, which is back to Joshua 10. Joshua 10 is the day the sun stood still and the Lord delivered victory for his people. So Isaiah is saying, just like those two great victories in Israel's past, so too the Lord is going to rise up and he is going to accomplish his purposes. Verse 22. So stop your mocking or your chains will, will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. So 14 to 22, it, it, it begins and ends with scoffing or mocking. You scoffers, verse 14, and then verse 22, a warning to stop mocking, to stop scoffing, because the Lord's judgment is coming. And then the passage ends with a parable. It's a parable of a farmer, and the the farmer here is, um, this parable is representing uh, much of the truths that we've been seeing already in the chapter. Verse 23 He says, listen and hear my voice, pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? And these are all rhetorical questions. And the implied answers to these are no. In other words, there's a a season, right? There's a time for plowing and breaking up soil. He doesn't do that the whole time. So there's a time for that. In verse 23, or in verse 25, when he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? In other words, 
doesn't the farmer know what to plant where and, and how to plant it? When he has, and then has his God instructs him and teaches him the right way. In other words, these things that the farmer knows, these are things that he has learned, but and even things that have been revealed to him by general revelation, if you will, by natural knowledge. So Isaiah is saying these peasants, these farmers, they have learned these principles from God. His natural revelation has taught them how life works. And the implied message there is this. Why, if the farmers have learned this from the natural revelation of God, why can't you listen to the very clear words of the prophet? Why can't these wise counselors, these leaders of Judah, who have the benefit of both natural and special revelation, why can't they be as intelligent and, and wise as these uneducated peasant farmers who know exactly what to do? Why can't they understand what God is telling them? And so he's comparing them to these farmers. Verse 27, Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is the wheel of a cart rolled over cumin. Caraway is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Now, none of these references probably mean much to us because we don't work with these, these tools or in these crops like they did in ancient Israel. But the idea of verse 27 is they know what to do. They, they know how to treat each crop. They know what tools work for each crop. They have wisdom in these things. Grain must be ground to make bread. So one does not go on threshing it forever. You, you need to have it in a, a, a texture that you can make bread out of with it. The wheels of a threshing cart may be rolled over it, but one does not use horses to grind the grain. In other words, each thing has its purpose and you do it the way that is right. And the, the way that you've learned from lessons of life, right? Verse 29, this is where he concludes. All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. And I think the idea here is the God who has arranged all of this and revealed this, even through just natural revelation to farmers. And they know how things work and they know how, what to do in what season and what, what tools to use for which crops. God says, God, I, God has arranged all this and he is able to teach people and reveal to people what is right. Why cannot you listen to the wise and the majestic and the sovereign God? who is teaching you what you ought to do. And so one of the primary overriding uh, emphases in chapter 28 is attentiveness to the word of God. Attentiveness to the word of God. And throughout the whole chapter, these, the leaders of Israel in their drunken state or the scoffers and the mockers of Jerusalem they're both guilty of putting their trust in the wrong things and of failing to pay attention and, and submit themselves to the word of God. That lesson, boy, that, that can transfer from 700 BC to 2018 AD, can't it? 
Now, we're not facing Assyrians. We're not facing Babylonians. We're, we're not facing invading armies. But we need to pay attention to the Lord's word. And we need to be on guard against putting our trust in human things. And I think we're particularly susceptible to that in our modern American culture because we have so many things that we can trust, so many things that we can put our hope in. You know, we, we get out in the morning and we trust our car to start up when we turn the key. You know, we, if we need to buy something, we pull out our debit card and we trust that little magnetic strip to work and pull money out of our account and pay for our groceries. We trust in all these man-made things and we put our hope in them. But sometimes we put too much hope in them, too much trust in them. And we look at our bank account as our security. Or we look at our strength and our talents as our ability to provide for ourselves and earn a living. Uh, we put our, our trust in our families or in our wealth or in our intellect, whatever it is. Technology, the, all the technology that we have available to us today. We put our hope in all these things. But all of those things can distract us and, and undermine our trust in God. And Isaiah is teaching the people in this chapter, you need to listen to God. Pay attention to his word. If you don't listen to his simple words that he teaches you, then he may bring a chastening hand on you to teach you what his words mean. And so uh, I think there's some great lessons in this passage and also, too, just a great pointer to Jesus Christ right in the middle of the chapter, isn't there? Jesus, this precious stone, the one in whom we trust, the one in whom we can build our lives on and not be ashamed and not be ashamed on the day of judgment, right? And enter into eternal life because our life is built on Christ.